Hello, my friends. Thank you so much for joining me for this webinar. The title of it is The Dangerous Tension with a Victim's Identity. This will be a challenging webinar for many of you because you have gone through some difficult things, and I will try to steward what has happened to you very well throughout this webinar. I want to shepherd you carefully. Uh, for those of you who are helping the victims of abuse, I trust that this will be an encouragement to you. My name, my name is Rick Thomas, and I'm glad that you're here. So let's start rolling through this webinar, The Dangerous Tension with a Victim's Identity. To be abused by someone is not hyperbole. Uh, it is one of the most challenging things that anyone will ever go through or anything that will happen to them. It is the deepest pain. It goes down to the soul. We are body and soul. And you can be abused by someone. You can be hurt physically by someone and you can get over it. Pain does happen to all of us. But the kind of pain that I'm talking about in this webinar and throughout will be the deepest pain. It not only affects us organically or can affect us organically, physically, but it also affects the non-organic aspects of us, body and soul. That, Therefore, because of this, it is the hardest challenge that anyone will ever go through, and it creates some of the craziest contours. No person who struggles with abuse goes through it the same way. Uh, it's like a maze that has many different openings to victory, many different openings to overcome it, and the path can be different for each individual. And it's important to understand that when you are caring for someone who has been abused. The ultimate goal is to help them out of the maze of their suffering so that they can be what I hope to present to you throughout this webinar, that they can be more than conquerors through Christ. And so that is the ultimate, ultimate goal. When I talk about abuse and when I do talks on it, when I write about it, when I do a webinar like this, I do briefly mention my autobiography, uh, some of the things that have happened to me, because I want you to know that I have been in that place on uh, more than one occasion. Uh, for example, uh, as a child, I was abused by an alcoholic father, as I have said often, that I, I do not know what a real dad smells like, for example, uh, because of his alcohol and his addiction. He started drinking when he was about 21 years of age, and he stopped drinking when he was 42. That's when he died. I have never known a dad who is not an alcoholic, the smell of it, the feel of it. But more than that, he was abusive. He was abusive verbally. Uh, he was a vulgar man as far as his language was concerned and his deep insecurities and the darkness of whatever happened to him. And for whatever reason he turned out that way, he lashed out at his five boys, and so verbally we were abused. It, it just seemed like a constant stream throughout our lives, our young lives, and I lived in that fear for almost two decades. I was 19 years old when he passed away. But in addition to the verbal, it was also physical. He beat us. He built, beat us with limbs uh, from a tree or belts or with his hands. Uh, he was, again, an abusive man, and that was my childhood. And there's no question that I was a victim of some hor horrendous abuse. And as I grew up, I, I got married, and then in 19... 1988, uh, my wife left with our two children. I did not have a template for understanding what it's like or, or what it means to live within a marriage and to be a husband and a father, and we had some challenges before us. Neither one of us were Christians at the time that we were married in 1979, 
the Lord regenerated me in 1984 and began a process of teaching me what it's like to be a biblical husband and and father, but it was not enough to rescue our marriage and rescue our family. Thus, in 1988, I lost my wife and, and two children, and that was the deepest of all pains that I've ever experienced in my life. It transcended whatever happened uh, with my dad, whatever he did to me. This was an unbelievable heartache, and of course, I still live with that, but I do live victoriously. Now, there is a lot of work that God had to do in my heart over the past several decades, and some of those ideas I will be communicating to you throughout this webinar. But again, my point here on this slide is to show you or demonstrate to you, remind some of you that I do understand what I'm talking about from an experiential uh, perspective. And then the third illustration of abuse in my life personally were two murdered brothers. My oldest brother was murdered in 1987. Someone uh, shot him with a double barrel shotgun and then they turned uh, the shotgun around and crushed the back of his skull with the butt of of the shotgun. And then in 1997, my second oldest brother, uh, his wife shot him five times with a pistol. And so they were both murdered 10 years apart. And so that's a brief autobiography. And I don't do that to communicate one-upmanship or, or to say that what I've gone through is more severe. I'm not doing any comparison here at all, but I do want you to know that uh, I have been in some of those dark places and the craziest contours, as I was speaking of in the previous slide, and I don't want to leave you in that place. God has done a huge work uh, in my life, in my mind, and I have changed. And you will not hear bitterness when I talk about these stories. Uh, you will hear gratitude, not for what happened and not for the perpetrators of the crimes or the perpetrators of the abuse, like my father, for example. I am not grateful for them or for what they did, but I am grateful for God's mercy uh, that came in and overpowered uh, the meanness of other people, and so I do want you to know that. Now, there are three types of victims, and the first type of victim is all of us. All of us are victims of the fall, and we want to acknowledge that. We want to own that. We want to say that is real, that is true. Because of the fall of Adam and Eve, all of humanity was plunged into sin, and so we came into this world totally, totally depraved. Everyone comes into this world totally depraved, outside of Christ, of course, because he wasn't born in Adam. But all of those who come through Adam are victims of the fall. It's not our choice. It is a condition of being born in this world. And so in that case, we are victims. Thus, we need someone to rescue us from the victimization of being Adamic creatures. Now, we're also victims of our choices. There are three types of victims, as this slide is communicating. And this second type is that we do dumb things. And I have a very long list. I could go deeper into my autobiography by communicating many dumb, dumb things that I have done in my life. For example, as a response to my victimization from my dad, I was an angry teenager and I chose to go down a path of drugs and alcohol, which eventually landed me in jail. My life was just getting worser by the moment. But those were choices that I made. Now, one of the temptations is for those who have been abused is that a sin constellation can gather around you, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but you won't even see where you have crossed the line from being a victim to legitimate abuse uh, to being a perpetrator by the choices that you have made. And so victims of we are victims of our choices. One of the passages that communicates that is what I call the LSD verse in James 1, verses 14 and 15. James says this, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, 
brings forth death. The LSD in this passage are the words desire, sin, and death. In the King James Bible, they translate the word desire here, lust. And so James would say, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And then when sin is finished, it brings forth death. And so there is lust that leads to sin, that leads to death. And thus you have the LSD verse. We are victims to our own choices. And when there are desires in our hearts... If that desire gives birth to sin, when that sin is fully grown, it will bring forth death. Thus, we are victims to our choices. And then thirdly, the category that most of you would probably think about and you're most familiar with is that we are victims to others. And I have described some of that victimization in my autobiographical sketch on the previous slide. But I want you to see that we are victims of all three of these things. We are uh, victims to the Adamic fall. We are victims to our choices. And then we are victims to others. And it does help to balance out our thinking uh, because those of us who have been victims to others, we can we can go so deep and dark into that that we don't realize our own culpability in some ways and some things that we have done and the fact that we are fallen creatures. And what does it mean to be Adamic, to be victimized by Adam, and how does that influence the victimization that happens through other people? And so there are three types of victims, Adamic victims, personal agency victims, and then victims to others. Now, why do we or why am I addressing victims and why am I doing this webinar? Well, based on the previous slide, all of us are victims. And so it's necessary for us to go to this place and talk about this subject matter as sensitive as it is. Now, I do recognize even though all of us are victims, we can go from the minor victim to the major. I probably fit more within the major category. That is the narrative that God has scripted for my life, and some of you will find yourself in that place as well. Others of you will be in more of a minor category as far as consequences are concerned, but wherever you fall on that spectrum, all of us are victims. And wherever you fall, I want you to know that there is a path forward. And I want to talk about that path forward. I am talking about that path forward in this webinar. Primarily, I want to be speaking about our identity because that is key. That is the crux of the matter. We have an identity, and my appeal to any person who has been hurt by another or been hurt through adverse experiences I want to make my strongest appeal that we can't take on the identity of a victim and carry that identity as a mantle throughout our lives. There is another identity, and that identity is in Christ, and that's the person that we want to gravitate toward. And I trust that God will give you some momentum, some motivation to move that direction, especially if you are in need of it. And so this is the big idea that I want to talk about in this webinar is our identity to make sure that those of you who have not just been victimized, which is all of us, but those of you who are stuck in your victimization that you take don't take on a victim identity. Now, what you want to do to be able to address where you are is you want to make some self-assessments to be able to make a sober self-assessment of, of where you are and how you think about uh, what has happened to you. And so each of us must see if we are thinking and acting like victims or victors in Christ. And so we're either one or the other. We are victims to those who have abused us, or we are victors in Christ. And so if you think about it like a, a needle pointing in one direction or the other, either the needle is pointing toward your victimization, and that is how you think, that is the mantle that you wear, 
or the needle has moved from being a victim to being a victor in Christ. Now, the second reason that I want to do this webinar is for the victim helpers, those people who come alongside those who have been abused by others. Victim helpers must address whether their practices further enslave victims into their victimhood or it helps them to move to that more-than-conqueror mindset because of the all-sufficient strength of Christ that works in these victims. Now, I am working under the assumption that the victims have been regenerated by the power of God. If you have not been born again, or what we say more commonly, if you have not been saved, then there will be no juice, there will be no power, there will be no empowerment, there will be no energy that will move you to that more than conqueror status. And so if you're not a Christian, then that is your first call to action. You want to find out how to become a believer in Christ, to become a Christian. That is a critical step because that is where the power comes from. We cannot overcome our victimness within our own strength. We will botch that up if we try to move through a victim worldview with self-reliant efforts. We need someone outside of ourselves, more fabulous than we are, to lift us up, and Christ is the one. Therefore, you must be regenerated. And if you have been born again, then those who come alongside those abused people, you want to make sure that you're not further enslaving them but you are helping them to not just benefit from, but to grasp and benefit in a more-than-conqueror mindset. And let me be honest here, and you know this, and so let me state the obvious. There are many people who come alongside victims, and they do botch it up. They further enslave. They don't move the needle from a victim identity to a victor identity, uh, but they further entangle those who have been legitimately hurt by others. And though there are many aspects of the effects of sin, there is a dangerous problem when those in a position to help victims do not assist redemptively, but cooperate in further enslaving the person into more in-depth victim perspectives. And so I just want to punctuate this point because there is a burden upon us, those who provide care, that we do it well. Now, as we move further into this webinar, I do want to talk about this idea of empathy and sympathy, and it flows right out of what I have been saying, The those people who help, those people who come alongside. There's been a lot of discussion within Christianity over the past several months about this idea of empathy and sympathy, and I'm not going to get into all the layers and contours of that, but I just want to define what these words mean from an etymological perspective because it's important to understand these words. I have no intent of being the word police word police, and I'm I'm not going to go whack-a-mole on you, that if you use the wrong word, I'm going to bust you for it. That's what I mean by whack-a-mole. I'm not going to do that because I'm not a word policey person. Nevertheless, I'm not going to recoil or retract from the importance of understanding words, the definitions of words, but not just that in how we apply them to our lives. And it's important to understand not just what empathy and sympathy are, but more importantly is to understand that we don't practice empathy with people, but we practice sympathy. Now, I don't care what you call it necessarily, but the practice that we implement toward abused people, that is in my mind, is non-negotiable. We have to do it right. So let me explain very briefly. The word empathy is, well, both words are about the preposition. 
and the word empathy is the preposition in. And what that means is, is that you step into the problem with the person. The illustration is like if you're on a boat or if you're on a dock where there's a body of water and someone is drowning, empathy would say you would jump in to rescue them. And I would say that that is a huge problem. In fact, there is no lifeguard training that you can take, no reputable, competent lifeguard training that you could take that would suggest that you do that. You do not empathize. And again, don't get hung up on the word, but do understand the practice that I am communicating. You don't jump in with the victim, because if you do, there's a good chance you will be swallowed up by what is happening. Sympathy, on the other hand, is a different word and a different preposition. It is the preposition with. And so now you have the same body of water. You have a dock or you're standing on a boat. You have the same victim in the water and the victim is drowning. But rather than jumping in, you throw them a a rope. You throw them a life preserver. You throw them a device that they can grab hold to so that you can pull them out. You're very much with them. You're not aloof. You're not distant. You're not uninterested. You're not apathetic. You're not uncaring in any way. But you have positioned yourself in the best possible position to help this individual because you're not jumping in where the possibility of both of you drowning is pretty strong. But if you're standing beside them, you can show them all the compassion that they need, but you're in a more competent position to be able to pull them out. And so there is a difference between jumping in and being with alongside them. Being with them, you can accomplish both things. You can walk with them through what they're going through. You can walk with them and and they will know that you're with them and that that, that you're right there with them and you can also uh, be able to help them to stay on track and so understanding the difference between those two words regardless of which word you use but understanding the practice is absolutely critical because you want to be the right kind of friend Now, speaking of right kind of friend, we have a way within our ministry of analyzing or diagnosing or uh, training. Uh, we, We have goals in view when we train our mastermind students. I have five of them. Uh, In particular, there are five different assessments that I make with each of our mastermind students to see what kind of friend that they are, because I know that everybody that goes through our mastermind program, our our online training program where we teach people how to disciple others or to counsel others, I know that all of them are not equal. All of them will have different giftings and different abilities, and not all not every one of them will be able to counsel abuse situations. They will not be able to step into these complex cases because they can't be that right kind of sympathetic friend, and there are reasons for that. And there are five pieces of assessment that we make with them. The first one is character. And character always leads the train. It is the foundation to everything that we do. We build our lives based on our character. Our character is who we are in the dark. It, 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 our character is who God knows us to be, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, that God knows the thoughts and intentions of our heart. That is our character, who we are at the very core of our being. Of course, I am aware that we can hypocritically mask our character and, and we can fool some of the people some of the time, but we do do a lot of work to try to understand a person's character. As I tell our students, the reason that we do so much work customizing our training to the unique student that is in front of us is because at the end of the day, at the end of the line, when it's all said and done, uh, we're going to be placing them in front of people. 
hurt people, abused people, and we want to make sure that they are of the utmost character. The second data point to diagnose as to whether the individual, the helper, is the right kind of friend is a person's capacity. A capacity, there are many different aspects to it, and I won't get into all of that here because that's not the point of the webinar, but I do want to highlight that a person has to have a let's just say a, a large cup, a large container. Uh, it takes a lot of discernment and a lot of uh, wisdom. It takes a lot of gifting that God gives. And so it is a big bucket person that can be able to come alongside someone in a situation like what I'm walking through here as far as abuse is concerned. And then there is competence. Competence is the training that an individual receives and all of that training and skill, it goes inside that big bucket. And so you can receive a whole lot of training, but if you have a small cup that you're pouring that training in, there's going to be a lot of overflow and you will not be able to process and benefit from all the training that you have participated in because of a limited capacity. And then the fourth element, data point, is courage. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a person with a backbone uh, to be able to speak into these difficult situations. Abuse people, uh, there is a way to help them, to care for them, to walk them through, and you have to be strong in order to do that, which leads to my fifth point, because some people interpret courage as as being authoritarian or being harsh. I'm not talking about that at all. Courage is not being harsh or being unkind. It, it, is, it is strength. It is strength under fire. But the fifth element, the fifth data point is compassion. And I insert that intentionally because some people have a warped view of what courage means. And therefore, the way that they dispense counseling is authoritatively harsh, it is unkind, and it doesn't have the concern of Christ that it should have, that it should carry to the person who is hurting. And so to be the right kind of friend who can sympathetically be with the individual that they are helping, these are the five elements that need to be diagnosed, need to be assessed. A person's character, their capacity, their competence, their courage, and their compassion. And these are the five elements that we look for in our students. Now, another idea when it comes to a person who has been abused is this word vicarious, or what I call a vicarious victim. Scholars associate the word vicarious to describe a victim. Therefore, it would be accurate to say that victim and vicarious are synonyms. And that's why I title this slide here, Vicarious Victims. It's a play on a title. It's a play on words. The words are synonyms. Vicarious, the etymology of the word vicarious or the etymology of the word victim, if you work it back and go back far enough, you will find that the word victim means vicarious. And we understand the word vicarious as far as our Christian theology is concerned because Jesus was or is, our or he was our vicarious sufferer when he lived on earth. He vicariously took our place when he was here on earth. He took our sin upon him. He took the punishment. He was the victim. He was vicarious. He's our vicarious sufferer. Now, this is an important thing to understand when it comes to helping people who have gone through various types of, of abuse, this idea of vicarious and victim, because the vicarious one or the victim, the victim is carrying uh, the sin the sin has been placed on them like the sin has been placed on Christ. Christ is carrying the sin, and understanding what the word victim means is important as we move along. And the most important, maybe the most important point about this idea of vicarious is that if you carry the abuse that happened to you too long, then it will have a detrimental 
an adverse impact on your soul. In fact, if you carry the abuse too long, the vicarious aspect of it will cause the abuse to become your identity. Therefore, you will have an abuse identity because you've carried the abuse too long. You have become the vicarious sufferer. There is a way to get rid of the sin that has been placed upon you so that you don't live in a perpetual, continuing, vicarious state. And so you can be abused, and there's nothing you can do about it. In most cases, it's just something that happens to you, like, say, with the illustration of my dad. I didn't ask for it. It was something that was done to me, and so I had to carry it, but I should not carry it for too long because if I carry it for too long, then it it goes to seed or it begins to rot. It begins to rot me. Now, because I did not know Christ, I did not become a Christian until I was 25 years old, and so there was no way for me to get rid of the abuse, the weight of the abuse, and so I became a permanent, perpetual, vicarious sufferer. Even after my dad died, I carried the weight of his sin upon me because I had no way of getting rid of it. And because I was trying to live as a vicarious sufferer, the only way that I could respond and react to the abuse that was happening to me was through self-reliant means. And so I implemented self-reliant methods to, as a response to the abuse that was happening to me because I didn't have another vicarious sufferer. I didn't have a Christ that I could put that sin upon. Therefore, one of my uh, reactions or one of my self-reliant ways to overcome my sin was to be angry at my dad. And so I responded in anger, which is not a good response. Ongoing anger towards someone who has abused you is not good for your soul. Eventually, I began to escape through alcohol and drugs. And as I said earlier, I eventually made my way to jail uh, because of choices that I had made. But I was trying to wrestle through. Now, when I say this, I don't want you to hear this as I'm not responsible for my choices. I am 100% responsible for my choices, but I'm also saying that I was trying to work through what happened to me without Christ, and that is the danger. And so when vicarious abuse lands on you and it stays too long, it becomes your identity, and the next thing that's going to happen is a sin constellation will begin to form around you. It will glom onto your soul. Many sins uh, will collect around your soul, and it will begin to transform you. Some of the sins I've listed here are anger and bitterness and blaming, cynicism and discontentedness and uh, relationally challenging. You can be a relationally challenging person and you can justify. Justify means to declare yourself not guilty, which further compounds what is going on with you because now you're justifying your actions. Now, this short sin list here that I just gave you are the very things that I was doing in response to the abuse that what happened to me through my father because I did not have anyone else. I did not have a vicarious suffer, sufferer, and so the sin stayed on me for so long that this sin constellation began to take shape inside of me. And so I became an angry teen teenager. I became bitter. Of course, I blamed, which is another, it, it's, a, it's a twin to justifying. I began to blame what was going on, putting it on someone else, trying to rid myself of it through blaming or through justification. I became cynical and discontented. I became relationally challenging. And then my last one here is fill in the blank. You can add a whole lot more because this is a non-exhaustive list, but these are some of the things that happen when you become a victim 
too long when you become that vicarious person. Now, here's the vicarious process. It happens like this. You are a victim. Legitimately, you go through legitimate abuse. Something happens to you. You didn't ask for it. You didn't call for it. It just happened to you. It is very much legitimate, and you're not at fault. Now, you could be at fault. I understand that. But in in this illustration, I'll just say you're not at fault. Uh, You got hit by the train, and or you got hit by the car, and you didn't ask for it at all. But, but here's the thing. Even though you didn't ask for it, and even though you're not at fault, you have to process through it. And if, if you don't have someone to put that sin on other than yourself, you will hold on to it too long. And then what will happen is that his sin or the sin of the abuser, whether it's a his or, uh, or her, him or her, whoever abused you, if it lingers too long in your soul, then that's when that sin constellation is going to start collecting around your soul. It will be their sin as the center point, but then this constellation of other sins, some of what I've described in the previous slide, will begin to glom on uh, to the abuse, and that is the vicarious process. And part of the vicarious sins that you will bring, that the abused person will bring into this mess will be an unforgiving spirit. There will be a blamer, or they will become bitter, or they'll become justified, or they will become rebellious. And again, these are the things that I brought to the party after the abuse happened to me. And even though I was innocent uh, in the abuse uh, that my daddy perpetrated on me, I didn't have a way of of putting it on anyone else, Christ I'm talking about specifically. I had no Christ, and so I could not get rid of him. The only person who can absorb the sin, my sin or someone else's sin, the only person who can take that sin and swallow it up and release, uh, release me from it. And because of that, the vicarious process set in, And so now these other sins begin to gather around, and then I became a sinning victim. One of the most difficult individuals that you will ever counsel, the sinning victim, where vicarious has set in so long that now a constellation has collected around them. It's the person who experienced legitimate pain from another person or from another experience. And they continued to be a victim, vicarious, too long, which brought a host of sinful responses to what happened to them. And this is where the counseling becomes acutely complex. This is why I was saying earlier that it has to be a large container person, a person with a large capacity to be able to help a person, but not just a large capacity. They have to have the competence. They have to have the chaining. They have to have the character. Uh, they, they have to have the courage. They have to have the compassion because once you get into a sinning victim state, you, you are interacting with a complex soul that needs the utmost care. Let me give you an illustration of the sinning victim of how the sin stays too long and it forms an identity. I'm going to talk about the alcoholic victim and I'm going to use AA, the AA identity, Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I don't, I'm not here to be overtly critical about Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I know the intent of that ministry many decades ago when it was started, and I know that there are many, many people. Uh, there, there will be some people who will listen to this or watch this webinar, and they will uh, give anecdotal evidence to uh, the benefits of AA, and I get that. I, I get it, but even with that said, Uh, There is an issue here, and I trust that uh, if you're beholding to AA or benefited from it or know someone who has, I would just appeal to you to listen and listen with humility, and I will try to communicate in a similar way 
and maybe the Spirit of God will help you to see that there's a, a complexity here that's not healthy. It's not, a, it's not good as far as the alcoholic victim is concerned. I'm talking about AA. What happens is the victim identity, because the AA identity says that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, and so they take on the role of a victim. They say, I am a victim to alcohol, and so they take on the victim identity. And so the person uh, has been drinking alcohol, they become an alcoholic, they become addicted to alcohol, they take on the victim identity, they can never get rid of it, so there is no vicar- there's no ultimate vicarious savior. There's no other person to take that sin, and so this idea of being an alcoholic is something that they carry all the days of their lives, and so the victim gloms on to alcohol. That's the merging. That's the victimization. It is an alcohol victimization uh, where the victim identity or alcohol gloms onto the person, and they become uh, this weird alcohol victim saint is what they become. They become an, I'm an alcoholic, which means I'm a victim, but I'm also a saint. Let's say that they are a Christian, that they're they're born again. And so they live in this amalgamation between a saint and a sinner or a saint and a victim because of alcohol. And one of the reasons that they think that way is because the desire for alcohol continues to abide in them. And because I have this desire, therefore, I am an alcoholic because I have this desire. And that's the mindset that has to change. You can have the desire. We have desires for all sorts of things, but we're not victims to those things, or we don't have to be victims to those things. That's what James was saying earlier in in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, that we desire, but now when desire conceives, when desire turns into a sin, well, then that is a problem. But just to have a desire for something, an ungodly desire for something, well, that is a dormant desire, but the reason that you're not a victim to that desire is because Christ takes that. Christ is the one that's vicariously carrying these things. And so it's a misthought, it's a misinterpretation, it's a misunderstanding to say, because I have a desire, therefore I am always a victim. A temptation is not a sign that you have not changed. We're all tempted every day by all sorts of things, but that temptation doesn't mean that we haven't changed. The temptation will always come uh, because there will always be the tempter who is in front of us, but because we have thrown those sins on the vicarious sufferer Christ, we're no longer a victim to those things anymore, and it no longer has to be our identity. And a very similar thing can happen to the abused victim as well. They have a legitimate hurt. Like with the alcoholic, they go through a season or a decade or two of alcoholism, and it's a legitimate hurt. Of course, in that case, it's it's a hurt of their own choices. But in this case of the abuse victim, somebody does something to them, and again, it's a legitimate hurt, and it takes them to some dark places, and it begins to form their identity. And this is the thing that I'm appealing to any person who is suffering because of things that have happened to them, whether it was their doing, their personal choices or not, is that we want to get rid of this shaping identity. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 12, of how bad things can happen to an individual, but there is a path forward. This is the text that you're very familiar with. It's the thorn in the flesh text. And he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Paul said that three times I asked the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And and God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul goes on to say, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Because you struggle with temptations, because you have desires, uh, like what I was talking about in the previous slides, well, that that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. Uh, it does put you in a position of weakness, but that 
position of weakness should propel you uh, to reach forth and to benefit from the power of Christ, that it may rest upon you. And in Paul's case, he, he tells us that he was in a place of deep contentment because of this riddle that was solved. A thorn was given. He did not want the thorn. He didn't want the abuse, but he learned how to uh, rest or to find contentment through the power of Christ because it was through the portal of grace that was extended to him. So Paul says, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships. I'm content with persecutions and calamities. That's quite the list. And then he gives us this I think it's the, the key to life, honestly. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. When we were weak before our salvation and recognize our depravity and our eternal destination, that was a very weak point. Well, we found strength because we rested in Christ. And then in our progressive sanctification, we find us in, in weak spots all along. But again, the weakness is not the liability. The weakness is the key that catapults us into the strength of Christ, and grace provides that for us. And so as you work through abuse, I want to walk through this process because what happens is the temptation is is that we can conflate the past with the present. This is what happened to me, and then we begin to carry an identity into our presence, present tense, Uh, because of what happened in the past, and we're conflating the past with the present, and I want to make an appeal to you that you don't conflate those two things. And so the most vital issue with an alcoholic victim or an abuse victim is their struggle with separating and prioritizing and adequately interpreting their two identities, their abuse identity and their identity in Christ, their victim identity and their victor identity. And the reason that they have a problem with these with this is because they're conflating the victim with the victor, and it leaves you in this murky no-man's-land place. And the reason that happens is because they don't know how to separate prioritize, and interpret their two identities. And so I want to walk through each one of those, separating, prioritizing, and interpreting. The first step is to separate their their identities into a then and now framework. That was your past, but this is your present. This is hugely important. Whatever abuse you have gone through, that was your past, but that's not who you are. And so you want to begin thinking about separating, drawing a line between the past and the present. Separate the two identities. What happened was then, this is who you are now. And then the second thing that you want to do is the victim has to be intentional about making their identity in Christ the priority. And so as you separate the then and now, You have the responsibility of placing the accent mark on one or the other. You can place the accent mark on what happened to you then or who you are now. Which one are you going to prioritize? And so the first step is to separate the two identities. I was an abuse victim, but then I learned about the vicarious savior, the other victim, And so I began a process of learning how to put my abuse on the other vicarious savior or the vicarious savior so that he can carry it. And so now my identity is in Christ, not the identity of an abuse victim. And so that's step number one, separating. Number two is intentionally. Now you have to take your thoughts captive. And every day you have to prioritize the most important identity, which is your identity in Christ. And then the third step is interpretation. You must give your past and your present a biblical interpretation. Now, I want to give you an illustration of what I'm talking about with the story of Joseph. Joseph gave us excellent advice on how to do all three of these things, how to separate, how to prioritize, and how to interpret the abuse. And it's all embedded in Genesis 50, verse number 20, which I'm sure you know quite well. He says, as for you, you meant evil for me. 
He's starting to separate what happened then, the then and now. And so he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so you see how he separated the two things and not just separated the then and now, but he prioritized it. He did not put the accent mark on what they did, but he put the accent mark on who God is and what God's intentions are and what God meant. And so he says, as for you, you meant evil. So he's he's going to separate that out. And then he says, but God meant it for good. And so he prioritized, he puts the accent mark on God's goodness. And then he gives an interpretation to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so now he's given an interpretation to what happened to him. By the way, if you go back to my autobiography that I gave at the beginning of this webinar, uh, my interpretation of it now, I mean, well, first of all, I've, I've done these things. I've separated it out. That's what happened. But that's not who I am. Number two, prioritizing. God is doing a good thing uh, through my life, in my life, and so I'm focusing on the goodness of God. And, of course, now I am living on this side of it many decades after, and I can see how those evil events God used to shape my life in a most positive way that has allowed me to do a good work for God. And so now I can separate what happened. That was then. This is now. I prioritize who God is, and I have an interpretation. Now, Joseph's interpretation is to bring about that many people should be kept alive. Joseph was sent to Egypt to preserve people, and in a similar way, an echo kind of way, there were some horrific things that happened to me because God wanted to use me to help people. And so that's an interpretation, an illustration of what I'm talking about here. And so you have to move beyond victimhood as far as being an abuse victim. And so separating. You can separate the then and now without pretending the past did not happen. You see, Joseph was clear about what they did to him. He didn't hide the fact, yeah, you did this to me, what you did brothers. you What you did, it was evil. And so when I say separate then and now, it's not hiding, uh, burying your head in the sand and pretending that it did not happen. No, it did happen. And Joseph was clear. But even in his clarity and even in his remembrance of what happened, he was able to separate and he did not pretend that it wasn't true. And then he pr prioritized if you don't place the accent mark on God's sovereignty, you will assume a victim's identity with all of its liabilities. And so you have to live in the parallel. You're not pretending it didn't happen, but you're also not pretending that God's sovereignty is not true. And so you're living in the parallel and you're choosing to prioritize or put the accent mark on God's sovereignty. And then thirdly, interpretation. There are two lenses through which to see your suffering. Joseph did not dismiss the pain, but he chose to see it from God's vantage point. Now, you'll have to decide, will I be a blind patriot saluting the flag of my suffering, or will I be a biblical thinker? Joseph was not going to kick his brain in neutral and just become a blind patriot, the ongoing, forever, perpetual, vicarious sufferer, no, he, he, he was going to be a biblical thinker. And so all of us who have been abused, been hurt by others, we have a decision that we must make as we move from victim to victor. Whether we're going to be a blind patriot that salutes the flag of our victim mentality or a biblical thinker. Now, my appeal to you and my appeal to myself as I preach the gospel to myself is I want to live like Joseph. And so let me hit some of those points again. He did not pretend that it did not happen. And so again, we're not burying our head in the sand. But he could choose what controlled him. As you slide the accent mark from then to now, from the, the victim, you being the victim, to Christ being the victim. And so you slide the accent mark. I'm not going to be a victim, but I'm going to be a victor because I can put the sin that happened to me on 
Christ. And so I have to make this decision. I'm going to live in the parallel reality of those two things, and that will determine the interpretive lens. That will be the window through which I look out and give me the interpretation to how I think about all of life. Now, you can assess yourself to see if you're in a victim stronghold. Are you characterized as a grateful person when you look back on what happened to you? Though you're not, though you are sad over what happened, you're not grateful for what happened. That's not what I'm saying. You're sad over what happened, but you do see God's mercy through His the sovereign fruit in your life. When you think about those who sinned against you or your thoughts like Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. These are two ways that you can assess yourself. Gratitude for what God has done in you because of through, through the despite the abuse and also a forgiving attitude toward others. Let me hit on forgiveness briefly. There are two types of forgiveness. There's attitudinal and transactional. I have done a webinar on this, my biblical repentance webinar. I would encourage you to watch it. I'm not going to get into the, all the contours of what attitudinal and transactional forgiveness means, but I will just define it this way. Attitudinal forgiveness is you um, having an attitude of forgiveness toward the person who hit hurt you. That person is not asking, so you cannot transact. You can't transact forgiveness because they're not asking for it. But you can have an attitude of forgiveness. It does not release them from what they have done, but it releases you from what they have done. And so you can minimally have an attitude of forgiveness. More assessment as far as assessing the victim's stronghold. Would you characterize your heart as one of pity when you think about those who hurt you? And that's the way I think about my dad. I feel sorry for him. It's not controlling sorrow where I'm just living in some deep hole, but I do feel pity for him. I do not feel anger at all. Another question, when others hear you talk about what happened or the one who did it to you, do they sense that you're not a victim but a victor? This is that attitudinal forgiveness, for example. Maybe you can never transact forgiveness with them because they never ask, or they died. In my dad's case, we can never transact forgiveness because he died. But you can hear the attitude. You can hear my attitude. And when others hear you talk about what happened, or the one who did it to you, do they sense that you're not a victim, but you are a victor? One more question. Are your words... Are your words, even about your suffering, seasoned with grace and gratitude? This would be a good way to assess, to see where you are in this process. The path to a victor mentality starts in the darkest of places. If you're beginning your journey out of that dark place, do not hear my talk here in this webinar as a person trying to ascend Mount Everest. Don't stare at the peak. That can be depressing. Retrain your eye toward base camp. Staring at the goal may deflate you, the summit. You're beginning, you're at the beginning stage. And no matter how much you want to stand victorious on that summit, you can't do it today. And so let me wrap up with some indispensable keys. Number one, assess where you are. Just honestly assess where you are. And remember it's not so much, and I know this sounds cliche, and I don't mean it that way, but it's true. It's not so much about a destination, but it is an attitude. And what you're really wanting, don't say, I want to get to a particular place that someday. Don't look at the summit, but just think about the stages up to the summit and work on your attitude. And you'll find as you work on your attitude that you'll be there quicker than you might imagine. You're not looking for a perfection of something, but the presence of it. And so, well, you say, well, I haven't perfected gratitude. No, maybe you haven't, but you can begin working. You, you can assess to see if you have the presence of it. Well, I'm not able to forgive them completely now, but is, is there a leaning? Is there 
uh, just a modicum of desire to want to have an attitude of forgiveness toward them. You're not looking for the perfection of these things, but you're looking for the presence of them. And then finally, you don't want to punish yourself. Don't beat yourself up for where you are or the fact that you're stumbling through or you're still caught in some of these traps. Don't punish yourself, but reach out and look for help. Uh, ask someone to help you. We would love to do that. We have millions of words on our website. That's literal. We have articles. We have videos. We have podcasts. We have interactive forums. If we can help you, come to our ministry. This is what we are about. We are helping Christians so that they can help others. And if we can help you in this process, please uh, let us know. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the webinar. And if I could, I, I do want to make one more appeal. This, this webinar that you just watched, if you made it all the way to the end, this webinar didn't cost you a dime. This is a free webinar. And if you are able to support our ministries, if you believe in what we're doing and ben benefit from the resources that we are providing, we're providing these resources freely, uh, if you can help us in any way, I don't want you to feel guilt about that whatsoever. Do not feel guilt. Uh, be released from guilt. But if you have the means and you can help us as a local church, if you can support us on a monthly basis or an annual basis or an individual or a business owner, if you could help us, please do that because we're going to continue to trust God that he will put it on the hearts of his children to support this ministry. So we're going to continue to give these things away. And we uh, just completed one hour with you. And I, I give this to you. I commend it to you with joy. And if you could help, please, uh, please help us. And if you can't, God bless. No problem. No worries. We're trusting the Lord in this process. But please share this webinar. Please use it. And again, any way that we can help you uh, through a process of abuse, or if, if you're in the place to where you really want to help people, well, then let us know. Uh, we do that. Again, that's who we are. Thank you so much for watching The Dangerous Tension with a Victim's Identity. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.